0: This weekend's message is from Tyler McKenzie. He's the lead pastor here at Northeast. Uh, we are in part two of a sermon series we launched last week called From Death to Life. And the series focuses on just that Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection back to life. In fact, in the first three weeks before Easter, we're focusing specifically on the cross, his death. And we're doing what I'm calling cross theology. And the hopes is that at kind of an introductory and foundational level to explain to you how the authors of the scripture saw the cross and what those basic implications on our lives are. Now, in the three weeks following Easter, we're going to do the exact same thing for the empty tomb, for the resurrection. We're gonna do resurrection theology. And again, we'll talk about the biblical implications of it. We'll talk about how the authors of scripture see it. And I hope you'll continue to join us for those. Now, as I said last week, As we move through this series, disclaimer, three weeks ain't enough, y'all. Three weeks ain't enough to explain the cross in all of its fullness. Three weeks ain't enough to explain the resurrection in all of its its fullness. Okay, trying to explain either one of those in just three weeks, little 30, 40-minute sermons, it 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 would be like handing me a package of crayons and saying, Tyler, recreate this Rembrandt for us. Okay, well, first, you've got the wrong artist. I don't have the skills to do it. Second, you've given me the wrong tools and we don't have enough time, right? That's what I feel like trying to explain the cross in just three weeks. But, but I believe we have to do it. We must do it. We gotta try because the cross and the empty tomb are the linchpin of human history. They're the climactic moment in the story of God and in the story of humanity. They're the essentials, the foundation of our faith. And if we get the cross and the empty tomb wrong, then nothing else matters. So let's try and get it right. All right, Uh, with that being said, uh, I wanna start today by reading from John chapter 19. If you were here last week, we read from Luke's story of the crucifixion. Today, we're gonna hear John's story of the crucifixion. If you're able, uh, wherever you are, I'd ask you to stand with me right now. Maybe you're at home with family, just stand out of honor and respect for the scripture. And if you're not, that's okay. Just try to put yourself in a spirit of surrender and of listening as we hear from God's word. John chapter 19, verse 14. John writes, it was now about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover. And Pilate said to the people, look, here's your king. Away with him, they yelled. Away with him, crucify him. What? What? Crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the leading priests shouted back. And then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went on to the place called the place of the skull, in Hebrew Golgotha. There they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side with Jesus between them. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in the Hebrew, Latin, and Greek so that many people could read it. Then the leading priests objected and said to Pilate, Change it. Change it from the King of the Jews to, He said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate replied, No, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the scripture that says, they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that is what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, dear woman, here's your son. And he said to this disciple, here's your mother. And from then on, the disciple took her into his home. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished and to fulfill scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it's finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for all of his word. You you can be seated wherever you're at. Thank you for standing. Now, uh, if you were here last week, uh, then you know we began our section of the series on cross theology by starting with one word. And that word is forgiveness. And at a personal level, That's what most of us associate with the cross. Big point number one, maybe you remember it, the cross is how God forgives our sins. And no doubt, that's one of the dominant themes that the authors of scripture associate with the cross. But I believe there's a theme that's even more dominant than our personal forgiveness. And that's what we're gonna expound upon today. For you note takers in the room, it's gonna be the same way as last week. I'm gonna give you this big theme of the day and then we're gonna have five subpoints that we'd sort of fly through for the rest of our time. But this is the big theme. And honestly, if we could take like Peter, Paul, John, some of the main authors of scripture and send them up here on a panel today, I think that they would tell you that this, this defines what happened on the cross. Second big cross theology point is this. The cross... Cross is how God defeats evil. And perhaps that should be evil with a capital E because by evil, I mean the devil and his demonic horns and death and sin, the curse of sin on the world, the claims of sin on our life, all of it was defeated in the historical moment on the cross, Jesus's cross. And forever since the world has been changed. Again, if Peter, James, and John were here, you know what they would do? they would point to the cross and they would say, hey, when you look at that, what you think you see is a poor Jewish rabble-rousing peasant who ticked off the wrong people and is now paying for his crimes. But that's not what's actually happening there. What you're actually seeing is God in the flesh throwing himself on top of a nuclear grenade called evil, and burying its blast and then burying its blast underground. And as crazy as a crucified God and a crucified Messiah might sound, apparently it had teeth to it because it stuck. And almost immediately, this symbol of torture came to represent Christian faith, hope, love. Think about 2,000 years later how we celebrate the cross. What was once the symbol of the power of human empire is now the symbol of the power of God. What was once an instrument of human suffering is now the instrument of Jesus' love. What was once an expression of imminent death is now an expression of eternal hope. In a sense, the cross has come to represent the very opposite of its original purpose. And all of us here today and we're like, how, how did that happen? How is that even possible? Well. The scripture tells us it's possible because on the cross, God defeated evil. We see something historic happening. And ever since the world has not been the same. Now, that's our big point today. And that leads us nicely to our first point as we kind of fill in the theological blanks here. So note takers run along with me here. Uh, this is a uh, sub point number one. The cross is how God defeats evil And point number one. Uh, the authors of scripture get this idea from the Hebrew scriptures. Okay. It was the unexpected fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. Again, James, John, and Peter are sitting here. They're on a panel and we ask them, hey, what's up? Why, like, What's going on with the, with, with the cross? I think that they would face palm and they would say, we should have seen it. We should have known it all along. It was in the law. It was in the prophets. We didn't see it. We never expected a crucified Messiah. But now that we've gone back and looked, we should have seen it, but we didn't. During Jesus' time, there were lots of messianic expectations and hopes, if you will. Lots of different brands and flavors of it. But the majority of the people believed that a Messiah would come. uh, They would be a warrior-like figure. They would chase the Roman pagans out, deliver the people from Roman oppression, cleanse the temple, and establish the kingdom of God. That was the core of their hope. And that was not exactly what Jesus did to get the best visual of what their hope looked like in the Messiah, you actually have to rewind about 160 years from the time of Jesus to the Maccabean Revolt. Let's, let's run down a little historical rabbit trail. For those of you who like history stories in here, we'll just, let's go there for a second. Um, sometime in the second century, uh, an army, uh, the Seleucid Empire, if you will, came into Judea, they swept through Jerusalem, and they took over the land. They were led by a cruel king named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Epiphanes means something like God manifests. So he was very humble, as you can see. Now, here's the thing about Antiochus Epiphanes. He did not like the Jews. And the reason why is because they were a stubborn people and they refused to assimilate to Greek culture. So you know what Antiochus did? He says, well, if they're not gonna assimilate on their own, I'll make them assimilate. So he took his army They stormed Jerusalem. They stormed the Jerusalem temple. They went in, and Antiochus literally sacrificed a pig on the altar. Then he had his soldiers erect uh, two uh, altars to uh, pagan gods, one to the Greek god Zeus, the other to the Phoenician god Baal. And you tell me, how's it going at this point for the Jews of Jerusalem? We've got pagans, pigs, and altars to Zeus and Baal in the temple. Some of them are absolutely terrified and some of them are incensed and ready for a fight. Now to take things one step further and make matters even worse, Antiochus then makes a law throughout the entire land that it's no longer legal to be a Jew. He outlaws Sabbath and circumcision and festivals and food laws and all the things. And in order to terrorize the people, he starts sending like regiments of soldiers out into like the hill country villages of Judea to make sure that people are abiding by the law. And when those soldiers would go into town, the people would gather around them and the soldiers would make the elders of the community do things to prove that they weren't Jewish anymore, like eat pig or like sacrifice to pagan gods. Well, according to 1 Maccabees uh, chapter two, uh, some soldiers uh, go to a hill country town in Judea one day and the town comes out to meet them and they're led by an elderly priest named Matthias. The soldiers look at Matthias and they say, Why don't you make this easy on everybody and you go first. Offer sacrifice to this pagan altar that we have erected here in your community. And Matthias, again, he's a stubborn one, so he looks at them and he says, I don't care if everyone on the face of the planet Earth worships the pagan gods, me and my family will not. Well, temperatures escalate, but before things get out of hand, another man steps forward and he says, I'll offer the sacrifice, I will. And as he steps forward, this incenses Matthias so much that he like, as elderly as he was, I guess slaps on some icy hot, pulls out a sword and slays this man and then they kill the soldiers. And Matthias holds his sword in the air and he says, if you're with me and if you're with God, follow me. And he and his strapping young sons and a group of revolutionaries run into the mountains and hide out. And so the revolution begins. The insurgency begins. begins. Now, not long after this, Matthias, again, was old, so so he dies, but his son, Judas, later to be known as Judas the Hammer, takes over for him. And the whole thing's pretty successful. Think of the movie, The Patriot. That's what they are. They're just a guerrilla warfare movement, sneaking up on small bands of Seleucid soldiers and taking them out one by one. And as they're successful, their reputation grows and the Jewish people cheer and more and more come and join the war. Uh, There's an interesting story in the Maccabees uh, of a battle between the Seleucids and the Jews uh, where uh, the the Seleucids come with elephants to the battle. Seriously, because like elephants were the tanks of the ancient world and and the elephants have armor on them. And uh, so there's this one Jewish warrior named Eleazar who looks and he sees an elephant that has like the royal armor on. I don't know how he knew it was the royal armor. It was the royal armor. And he's like, if that's the royal armor, then that means Antiochus is on the elephant. So he takes a spear, he charges the elephant, he slides underneath it, gets it to where the, uh, the armor isn't, and he slays the royal elephant. Only unfortunate thing is when he slays the elephant, the elephant falls on top of him and squishes him, and he dies. And the even more unfortunate thing is that come to find out, it was a decoy royal elephant. And so Antiochus wasn't actually on it. Make sure before you go on a suicide mission, you have proper intelligence, right? Nonetheless, his bravery was not in vain. It inspired the people. And before you know it, Judas the hammer and his band of merry men become so powerful that they go into Jerusalem, they take the temple pack, they purify it, they light the oil lamp that only has enough oil for a day, but in a moment of miraculous intervention, God keeps the lamp lit for seven days. And this is where the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah comes from. Critical moment in Jewish history, right? Now, sadly, although it was close to the Messiah movement people were waiting for, it didn't quite fit the bill. The ancestors of Matthias and Judas Maccabees, uh, well, they end up being corruptible by power. And then Rome eventually comes in and takes it over anyways after the Greeks. But yeah, see that hand in the back, go ahead, Tyler, what's the point of this historic rabbit trail? Well, the point is that this is what the people imagined in Jesus's time. When they thought of a Messiah, they thought Judas the hammer was coming and instead they get Jesus hammered on a cross. And yet this is the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. I love how Jesus explains it in Luke chapter 24. In Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus has been crucified. He's risen from the dead. Two of his followers are leaving Jerusalem and they're sad and heading back to Emmaus. And Jesus appears to them on the road. They don't know it's Jesus. They just think he's another traveler walking walking along. And uh, Jesus says, why are you guys so sad? And this is what they say. They say, because of the things that happened to Jesus. The man from Nazareth, he was a prophet who did powerful miracles. He was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people, but our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel, but they crucified him. This all happened three days ago. Well, then Jesus said to them, you foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures, wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? To which the men on the Emmaus Road are like, no, wasn't clear, Jesus. It wasn't clearly predicted. You, you, they don't know he's Jesus at this point. It wasn't clear, stranger, so, so can you please tell us? And then it says, Jesus then took them through. Watch, he took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So he unveiled it to him. In other words, Jesus says, the law, the prophets, they all pointed to me. I'm the fulfillment. In fact, Matthew 5, 17 uh, explains this further. And sort of this cryptic passage that's often uh, uh, one of, of, of a lot of debate. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill, to fulfill. Now, when we think of the law and the prophets, What we often think of is like the Ten Commandments and legal codes and thus saith the Lord's, right? But in all actuality, if you go and read them, they're more narrative, they're more story, if you will, than than legal code. They're the story of God and they're the story of humanity and the story of God's people and how they failed and God pours out mercy and promise of restoration upon them and Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of that story. It was all pointing to me all along in Genesis chapter three. After Adam and Eve sinned, God says, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus says, that's me. In Genesis chapter 12, after Cain and Abel and Noah and all you know the, the, the wrath of God on the world and, and the tower of, of Babel and how they tried to reach the heights of the heaven, they had to mix up human language. In Genesis 12, after all that sin, God shows up before Abraham and he says, I'm going to give you a, a massive family and your descendants will bless the nations. And Jesus says, I'm the blessing to the nations. It was talking about me. In Exodus 19, before Moses delivers the Ten Commandments, God promises that I'm going to make you into a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And Jesus says, that's me. I'm the one who will transform you into that. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, after Moses predicts that the people will end up in exile, after breaking God's covenant, God then tells them, but I'm going to restore your fortunes one day if you will return to the Lord. And Jesus says, I'm the Lord. This is the moment of repentance. It all points to me. I'm the fulfillment. In fact, back to, to John, this gets at what Jesus says when he's on the cross with his final words, John 19, 30. It's actually only one word in the Greek. Jesus shouts, it is finished. His final words on the cross, it is finished. Or the Greek word there, it is to tell us die, to tell us die. Now, I would suggest to you, and many scholars would as well, that it is finished is a good translation for this word, to telestai, but it's not a complete one. It goes further than that. It actually means uh, something like it is finished, but also the work is completed, or the mission is accomplished, or the battle has been won. Uh, an equivalent to this would be like in a game of chess, looking at your opponent and saying, checkmate. Because timestamp it, the game's over, but also, you're looking at your opponent and saying, I've won and you lost. And on the moment, uh, on the cross, when Jesus shouts out to Telestai in this cosmic moment of redemption, he's basically looking evil in the eyes and he's saying, checkmate. And then he bows his head and gives up his spirit. Now, it didn't look like checkmate, did it? But this is what the story pointed to. This is what... Why Paul says in 1 Corinthians one eighteen, the message of the cross is foolish to those headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it's the very power of God. There's really no neutral ground. You either see it as foolishness or the power of God. And that's our first point, which leads us to point number two here. Point number two. Again, if we could have a panel of Peter, John, and Paul up here and we were to ask them about the cross, they would say the cross is how God defeats evil. And the power there, the power for victory, is actually found in the sacrifice. In the sacrifice. So This is how I think they would lay it out for us. Uh, They would say, look, when you look at the cross, what you think you're seeing, again, what you think you're seeing is an execution of a criminal on a Roman cross done by the political and religious authorities that be in order to subdue a crazy false prophet. But what you're actually seeing isn't an execution, but a sacrifice. And it isn't a criminal, but it is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it isn't a cross, but it's the temple. And it isn't the political and religious authorities that are doing it, but it's the ultimate, once and for all high priest who's doing it. And it isn't to subdue a false prophet, but it is to free the people. All this biblical imagery comes rushing in at this moment. Can you see all the symbolism? So back to John's story. I'll, I'll just give you a few markers. First, uh, in John 1940, when, uh, when John timestamps the crucifixion, he says, it was now about noon on the day of preparation before the, what's that? Passover, the Passover. He timestamps, he says, it's Passover week. Now, what's the Passover? Well, the Passover was the most important festival for uh, the Jewish people where they would pilgrimage to Jerusalem Uh, in order to uh, sacrifice a lamb in celebration of that one time, 1,500 years ago, when Moses led them in Exodus out from under the oppressive thumb of Pharaoh in Egypt. Moses told the people, sacrifice a lamb, put the blood of the lamb on your doorposts, the angel of death will pass over your home, and then tomorrow we will make haste out of slavery and into freedom in the promised land. It's the defining moment, if you will, of the people of Israel. And they remembered it and celebrated it. And Jesus chooses Passover for his crucifixion. That's not the only timestamp, by the way, that John gives us in that verse. He says, it was now about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover. What's that, Tyler? Well, the day of preparation was the day in which the sacrificial lambs were slaughtered in order to be prepared for the meal later that night. In fact, later rabbis uh, report that the lambs would begin to be slaughtered at the crack of dawn as soon as day broke and the priests would stop at around 3 p.m. Which if you read the synoptic counts of Jesus' crucifixion, that's the exact moment where Jesus cries out, Tetelestai, it is finished. He's the lamb, y'all. He's the lamb. And John leaves no doubt for us, by the way, because from the very first chapter of John's gospel, John 1, 29, John the Baptist identifies Jesus for us when he says, uh, seeing Jesus coming toward him, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So don't you see? You see all the symbolism here? What the biblical authors are telling us is this is the second exodus. Exodus. This is a greater prophet than even Moses. This is restoration. This is freedom, y'all. Freedom from an oppressive tyrant that's even more evil than Egypt, even more evil than Rome. It's evil itself. And yet the only way we walk into freedom is if we walk underneath and out. The blood, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's where the power is found. It's found in the sacrifice. Now let's get even more practical here, because that's sort of the theology. Point number three, point number three. John, Peter, and Paul are on a panel. Here's what they would tell us. They would tell us later, this sacrifice, the cross, is celebrated as the definition of love. How does God define love? They would tell us the cross. That's the definition. Uh, 1 John chapter four, verse nine. John actually says this much. It says, God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. What's real love, John? Well, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Quite literally, John says, real love is Jesus' sacrifice. That's how we define it. Now, this is important for us to take note of in our culture because we have this plurality, if you will, of uses when it comes to love. And most of us use love in ways that are either trivial or just downright unbiblical. So let's be clear here. Um, love is not like, I just love Starbucks. Okay, you like it, but that's, you're not, you don't love it. Love is not fanhood either. I just love the Reds. Okay, well, I'm excited about baseball coming, coming back soon too, all right? But that's not, that's not love, at least not on biblical terms. Love's not chemistry either. Mom, I'm in love with him. He's a drummer. Okay, but does he have a job? No, he doesn't have a job. He has tattoo sleeves, mom. Okay, that's great, right? And I'm sure as, as full as his tattoo sh- sleeves and his drummer forearms make you feel, okay? I, all I'm saying is that's not the, the biblical definition of love. Love's not a feeling at all, no. Love is an action, it's a self-sacrificial act, uh, action. And the exemplar of it is what we see on the cross. So uh, right now I'm reading a devotional by uh, Sky Jathani. Read it every morning. Um, it's a devotional on the Sermon on the Mount called, uh, What If Jesus Was Serious? And the cool thing is on each daily devotional, he gives a little sketch to describe what he's talking about for the day. And this was a sketch in one of the ones I, I read recently. Uh, it's, it's the love a meter The love a meter according to God. And you can see here what Sky's getting at, what God's getting at. The closer you get to self-sacrificial love or the closer you get to the cross, the more loving it actually is. After all, in John 15, right before Jesus is arrested and crucified, he looks at his followers who are his friends and he says, there is no greater love than when a man lay down his life for his friends. So if you're asking me to give you an equation if you or a definition of love, I would define it for you like this. Okay? This is the biblical equation of your love. The authenticity of your love is determined by, or it depends on, the intensity of your sacrifice and the complicity with God's will. And this is the cross. On the cross, we see Jesus 100%, to death, complicit with God's will. And we see an intense sacrifice for others, for the world, like one we've never seen before. And when you begin to see love this way, what you realize is that love isn't as comfortable. It isn't as soft and gooey, warm and fuzzy as we thought it might be. In fact, uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote this once. He said, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared with love and dreams. And if the cross is the paragon of love, then he's right. Now, with that being said, this, this leads us nice into point number four here, note takers, point number four. This sort of love, cross-shaped love, always means suffering. It always means suffering. And this is why over and over you see the authors of the New Testament call the church to suffering, call the church to sacrifice, call the church to carry their cross, to offer their lives as daily sacrifices, because we are a cross-shaped people, y'all, and the cross always leads to suffering. Timothy Keller, um, the pastor who uh, I respect and read and listen to myself, uh, once said it like this. He said, uh, if you really want to enter into and rescue someone from their suffering or their strife or their sin, then you actually have to enter into their suffering. Like you can't love people from a distance. You have to get close enough to feel their pain for them to be close enough to feel your love. i give you a historic example. Uh, say you want to be like Corey Ten Boom and you want to uh, rescue Jewish refugees from the Holocaust and the Nazis and hide them out in your home. Well, in order to do that, you're gonna have to sacrifice your safety and enter into their risk, their danger, in order for them to experience some of your safety. Let me give you a more practical example. Let's say you wanna raise a child, and so uh, you and and your husband uh, have a baby. Well, in order to raise this baby well, to love this baby well, you're going to have to sacrifice some of your independence and enter into that baby's total dependence on you. You'll be up in the middle of the night feeding or calming or cleaning up all sorts of bodily fluids right and then you'll be up all day worrying or watching and before you know it it's mom 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 dad 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 and then that graduates to why 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 why. and before you know it you're like locked in the bathroom on your phone for 30 minutes just to get a break from the the suffering of the dependency right like and your kid's like knocking on the door like uh mom what are you what are you doing in there and you're like i'm going to the bathroom mom for 30 minutes yes go watch a show right but like you get my point right For your child to grow up and experience the independence of life on their own, you have to step into their dependence and make sacrifices. And the funny thing is is that it is a joy. It's a pain, but it's a joy to do. If you want to help one of your friends set free from addiction, you have to enter into their instability for them to experience your Stability. You have to, in a sense, wear their chains for them to experience your freedom. Or if you want to walk a friend out of grief, you have to sit with them and cry with them and writhe and mourn and, and shout in anger and doubt or just be there numb with them. You have to enter into their grief for them to experience your comfort. And it's awful, it hurts. The way of the cross is the path to the bottom and to the people at the bottom and to the pain at the bottom. But hear me now, hear me loud and clear. Worth it, it's worth it. The cross is worth it because it's the only way to win the fight. And cross-shaped love is the only way to resurrection life. Now with that being said, that leads us to our last point today, point number five. And like last week, As we bring the sermon to conclusion, we're going to partake of communion together. Uh, If you have the communion elements there at your home nearby, go ahead and grab them now and prepare them. And as you grab your communion, uh, I wanna review our points and then we'll close the message out and and take communion together. Uh, if, If you guys remember last week, on normal weeks, we usually have a communion meditation before we partake together. But this sermon has served, if you will, as a communion meditation over the cross. So as you're grabbing your emblems, quick review. The cross is how God defeats evil. That's our big point of the day. It was the unexpected fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. Its power is in the sacrifice. It's celebrated as the definition of love. It always means suffering and it's how, point number five, it's how we too defeat evil today. 2,000 years ago, the historical moment of Jesus Nazareth on the cross was how evil was defeated. It was put in its place once and for all. And 2,000 years later, today, in your moments, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your relationships, in your work, city, and church, it's the power to defeat evil even now. In fact, you know what theologians call it when we... Adopt cross shaped lives. They call it the establishment of the upside down kingdom of God, the presence of the upside down kingdom of God. Because when we live the way of the cross, we reverse the world's values and turn them on their head. We create a cross shaped counterculture within culture, or we create an alternative cross shaped reality within reality, if you will. When we embody the upside down kingdom, we no longer see money as something to hoard or save or spend on ourselves, but rather we see it as all gods in order to give unto others. We no longer see power for the sake of self-preservation or self-aggrandizement, but we see it as something we use strictly for the service of others and in love for neighbor. When we live in the upside down kingdom, we see racial or class supremacy and uh, superiority as a violation of the imago Day. We see a hunger for fame or recognition as a denial of the deep acceptance of the Father. We see a thirst for vengeance rather than a longing to offer forgiveness, as a lack in trust in God's ultimate justice that will come someday. And look, this is what marks the world, no doubt about it, but this is not what should mark us, Jesus followers, because we embody a different kingdom, a kingdom of cross-shaped love. And I can promise you this, if you live in that kingdom, What you'll find is all of your deepest desires and your deepest emotions are summed up there, are found there in cross shaped love. I mean, what is justice if not love for the oppressed? What is forgiveness if not love for the criminal? What is belonging if not a place you are loved? And what is purpose if not a place you can give love? What is discipline if not tough love? What is freedom if not anarchy without a people of neighborly love? What is wisdom if not love applied well? And what is the key to healthy anything if not choosing love again and again and again and again? What is grief? if not love deprived, what is commitment, if not love unto death, what is martyrdom, if not love over death, what is idolatry, if not loving the wrong things, what is a person's legacy, if not a recollection of what they truly loved in life, what is beauty, if not a feeling of love transcendent, what is hope, if not love, uh, looking forward to love, what is faith, if not trust in love, and what is God? God is love. And I would encourage you today, if you are uncertain about God, but you are certain that love should be the pursuit of your life. You are on the right track, right on, because if you run after love long enough, you'll find yourself before the God of the cross. John, the beloved disciple once said, if you don't know love, you don't know God. Paul, the great apostle and leader believed that without love, nothing else matters. Augustine, the great African theologian believed that worship is properly ordering your loves. Mother Teresa believed that small acts of great love will change the world. Martin Luther King believed that the only weapon to fight down racism is the weapon of agape love. And that's because Jesus believed that cross-shaped love defeats death. And that's what we remember in this moment. So we take the bread, which represents his body, and we drink the juice that represents His blood poured out for us. And as we do that, let us remember not only the power of the cross to defeat evil 2,000 years ago, but the power we've been given to do the same today.